tonight being the full moon night of Asalaha Puja. We've come together to practice for a night and to hear the recitation of the Patimoka. It's a time we can skillfully reflect back to the life of the Buddha and his the occasion when he gave his first teaching to the five ascetics and set out a very practical way to deal with our predicament as human beings. out of uh, compassion and wisdom. The Buddha had understood clearly for himself how the human mind experiences suffering and where it comes from and understood the end of suffering, realized the end of suffering And then began teaching, particularly the path of practice that will lead to that realization. He set the tone for his ministry, for his period of teaching the Dhamma. Everything he taught was based on his own experience. He wasn't theorizing or philosophizing. And this is one of the attractive features of the Buddhist teachings that there's always that practical application of the teachings very direct to our situation whether it was in the time of the Buddha or in this day and age still applies to us. And he began that talk, the Dhammachaka Pawatana Sutta by setting out the importance of developing a right view in the practice and he was coming into India at a time where there were many other spiritual teachers some of them claiming to be fully enlightened <coughs> So the beginning of the sutta, it was necessary for him just to set out what he saw as important to help refute some of the views of the day, and particularly his audience, the five ascetics, were very attached to the the view of what we say, the view of self-deprivation self-mortification, 
Atakilamatani Yoga, seeing that that was the way that would lead to spiritual release from suffering, depriving the body and mind of pleasure, ex- developing extreme ascetic practices. He began the, his talk pointing out that that was an incorrect view. Needed to refute that view so that the five ascetics would be more readily open to hear the Dhamma which he taught, which was something new and you might say revolutionary at the time. The Aryamaga, the Atangika Marga, the Eightfold Noble Path, or the Middle Way, Majjhima Patipata, that leads to the end of suffering. And he was the first guarantor of that, in that he freed his own mind from suffering and stress. So he was speaking from experience, but he had to help clear away some of the pre-held views of the five ascetics. So he began refuting that Atakilamatani Yoga. And that left Kama Sukhalikana Yoga. Once you've removed the, the view, the extreme view of seeing self-deprivation as the way to enlightenment, it leaves self-gratification, sensual gratification as the way, the way of the way of householders, unenlightened, untrained people tend to see the more short-term happiness of the world as the way to to live and what's important. So the accumulation of wealth, different kinds of sensual pleasures based on the body, on the senses, is the way to go. He had to refute that as well. (coughs) So what's left was the middle way. The Buddha just cleared away some of the wrong views that his students had been exposed to prior to that time. And they say it's like it's clean, like when we sew a new robe. If we use white cotton cloth, and you want to dye it with the natural dye of the jackfruit tree, or even if you use chemical dye, you have to wash the white cloth so it can receive the dye. So to receive the new wisdom of the middle way and the Eightfold Noble Path. The Buddha had to clean away some of the old accepted views that his students had. But again, he wasn't basing his refutation of those originally held views 
on this theory of philosophy is based on his own practical experience. Then he began to expand upon the Four Noble Truths. Based on his own understanding, the own, his own clarity that he developed and proven to be effective through his own practice. So setting out what is dukkha, our fundamental problem as human beings, is that we're bound up with dukkha, our life is bound up with dukkha, subject to birth, aging, sickness and death. And then all the sorrows and discomforts and pain and dissatisfaction we experienced during our life. Just pointing that basic truth out, drawing attention to it. Because again, the way of the untrained person is to tend to deny or push aside, suppress that, that truth. Often as long as we can secure the sources of immediate short-term happiness, the pleasures that come from wealth, from good health, from fame, fortune and so on, which uh, many of us in the world can attain, then we tend to overlook the deeper truth that life is bound up with dukkha. Even in this day and age when people get older and frailer as their health starts to fail them, their faculties fail them, even if they are wealthy or have attained a certain amount of wealth in the world. The pressure of aging and sickness and the onset of death, the closeness of death, can bring up extreme states of suffering. Tears, wailing, moaning, fears, anxieties. But then by then you might say it's too late, very difficult to start practicing at that late stage in life. So the Buddha in his compassion was pointing out the need to address these things from an early stage. As Lumpur Cha used to say, when somebody's born, we're always happy, rejoicing. But nobody thinks that this person eventually will get old, get sick and die. We just don't like to consider that inconvenient truth. But it's really at that point when you're bringing up a new person in the world is the best time to start sharing the Dhamma with them. And that would be the greatest good fortune of that newly born person. Having set out the 
first noble truth, and then the Buddha turned to the, the cause of that, the craving, the clinging, the becoming, and then the birth. The causes, dukkha, what we often abbreviate to just craving or wanting and clinging, fed by ignorance, is the cause of all our, our problems. He was directing his first five students to really look at that, observe that, or witness that. And this characterizes Buddhist practice. We're learning to develop mindfulness, clear comprehension, and then wisely reflect to investigate the truth. And this is the characteristic of our practice. And it's so we can become familiar with what is the cause of suffering, to understand it, know it, and then develop the strength, the clarity to abandon it. As our life as monks, very much involved with learning, observing from our own experience how craving and attachment leads to mental suffering, leads to problems. Someone was saying today even wanting happiness can be a cause of suffering. If you have to take the wanting out, you just have happiness. As long as you want happiness, you can still be disappointed, dissatisfied. And basically, whatever we want is going to lead to mental agitation. But then you need to want to practice. So often, people new to Buddhism will bring up this point. If you abandon all desires, all wanting, whether you won't do anything. So the Buddha did point out we need some skillful desire. We need to learn the difference between skillful desire, chanda, and craving that leads to suffering, leads to clinging, leads to suffering. There is a difference. <clears throat> or even would say sometimes we have to use craving to end craving. We have to use what we have. And our starting point is a, a human mind that is untrained, unenlightened. We have to use craving to end craving. We have to use conceit, mana, to end mana, to end our attachment to conceit. The very things we're learning and studying as the cause of suffering, the mental defilements. We're also using them as tools to go beyond them. As far as the realization of suffering, of the end of suffering goes, well, we have to take it on trust in the beginning. 
based on our faith and our confidence in what we've read and heard so far and how much sense it might make. Often faith arises just hearing the the well-reasoned and wise teachings of the Buddha. As practice develops, then it's about deepening that faith based on our own experience as we taste some of the freedom of letting go of desire, maybe some of the coarsest, worst desires we've held on to in the past, seeing the harm of them and then abandoning them. Some deeper faith can arise where we see the potential for abandoning more and more craving and attachment as we go along. Start to taste some of the inner peace, inner joy that comes from this process of abandoning. When we begin the practice, it's still something we just take on faith, on trust. Maybe we're inspired by the calm, peaceful presence of teachers or other practitioners we've met, or the joy that comes from the, the reasoning of reading the Dhamma and how it all makes sense and our questions are answered. But as we practice on, it's this inner joy, inner happiness that's giving us a taste of the freedom from suffering that we wish for. And then there's the Eightfold Noble Path, the path of practice that leads to the end of suffering. That's the key to our our life as bhikkhus, is that everything we're doing, we're doing to cultivate the, the various factors of the Eightfold Path, and with the aim of ending suffering, it has a, has a goal. It's where we help. It helps to where we can differentiate between the different kinds of desire, the wholesome desire that would lead on to the ending of desire, or the kinds of desire that just lead to more feeds more desire, more dissatisfaction. As we practice on uh, wisdom, our aim is to refine our wisdom based on experience to understand the difference more clearly so we can direct our energies, our efforts in the right place and to experience more fruits. So having explained these Four Noble Truths, the Buddha had um, Venerable Kondanya as, a, as the first proof that teaching the Four Noble Truths in this way, explaining them, expounding them, can bring its result. <clears throat> a practitioner on hearing them, reflecting on them, internalizing them, can have a realization. So Venerable Kondanya became Anya Kondanya, the first 
living Sangha of the Buddha. As we know, the, the realization he had was that all things that are subject to arising, subject to cessation, an insight into impermanence, removed a certain amount of delusion and wrong view from his mind. Something very simple, very direct, very practical insight that all of us can grasp, although maybe not all the time. It's an insight based on direct experience, developing this path. We can assume he developed the path factors in previous lifetimes, so they were already there, but just not perfected. And particularly as he reflected on the Buddha's words with mindfulness, steady mindfulness, his mind was calm, concentrated. <clears throat> and just that realization that everything he'd been clinging to, even the very wrong view that had been driving his practice prior to that, still a condition sankhara, subject to arising, subject to cessation. The body, rupa dhamma and nama dhamma, are the mental aggregates, the khandas, all rupa dhamma, nama dhamma, subject to arising, subject to cessation. That clear insight arose for him. pushing away delusion, darkness from the mind, the mind brightens. And the way of looking at the world, the way of looking at experience changed for him at that moment. No longer grasping at his own body and mind with self-view, seeing through the delusion of self. No longer was the view that you can own this world or the things of the world, you can have the things of the world for yourself. No longer holding to that view, is now dispersed. Understanding everything is a conditioned thing, arises, it must cease. You can't own anything, there's no self in anything. Already having that change of view, even though he wasn't yet fully enlightened, it undermined so many other mental defilements, you know, the coarsest kinds of conceit were abandoned. And the coarsest mental states of greed, stinginess, anger, jealousy that might lead them to break precepts or harm others were abandoned. The mind still has some subtle defilements there, but now the right view is established so you can see them as defilements no longer taking them personally as self, his anger, his greed, his jealousy, his worries, all the hindrances that normally afflict us. He could now address them with right view, mindfulness and insight, even though they were still coming up for him. So Venerable Kondanya was like the proof that the Buddha, having been enlightened, 
making the effort to begin teaching, it would bear fruit. It would be worthwhile. There were those with little dust in their eyes who could benefit from these teachings. It must have given the Buddha some kind of sign that he should carry on teaching. As we know, he was reluctant at first to teach. So in the hearts of those who have faith in the Buddha and his teachings, this day symbolizes something very important. It's a day we can look back at ourselves and say we too have this same potential to develop the same insight and free our minds from suffering, even if it's not completely free yet. We can set our minds on the road to the end of suffering by establishing right view. And in the modern era, Lumpur Cha has continued, you might say, this work of practicing to understand, to realize the Four Noble Truths and then sharing his realization with us. It's our good fortune to have come in contact with himself or his teachings and his Sangha. And again, sharing this way of teaching in a very practical, direct way simple, easy-to-understand principles of practice that we can all apply. We're encouraging us to apply regularly. That's where a time like the Vasa, where we come together for three months, live in one place, minimize our traveling and other distractions, can be such a valuable time. You have an opportunity to really learn and practice for yourself applying the Four Noble Truths and the way of practice of Ajahn Chah over and over again. However challenging it may be, however many different mood changes and personal experiences we have throughout three months. I'd encourage you all to see it as a time of almost like an experiment on yourself to really learn how you can apply the Buddhist teachings to your life to help you understand yourself better. We all know Lumpur Cha's sort of basic teachings these times is always speak little, eat little, sleep little. It's that encouragement to find the middle way for you. There's already many people in the world think that's that's the way of Atakilamatana Yoga, too extreme. Eating little, sleeping little, talking little, that sounds unnatural, that sounds too, too tight, too strict. Obviously it's just a general guideline that the untrained person tends to eat a lot, eat too much, sleep too much, talk too much. It's just a general principle to try and reduce some of those areas where we waste energy and get distracted. <coughs> But you have to use this time to find out what is the right amount for you. The result is, well, what gives you enough mindfulness and insight to reduce your craving, 
clinging and suffering. Another thing you used to hear from Ajahn Chara frequently was this encouragement to live easy, eat easily, to be one who's easy to look after with few wishes. Again, a very simple reflection. Just giving practitioners a, a guideline for how to go about your daily life so your mind is not too obsessed and caught up with the world so that you're free to really direct attention inwards to develop stronger mindfulness and stronger wisdom, clarity to see mental afflictions and deal with them. Living easily, ginnai. Sleeping easily, nongai. Living easily, yungai. Means like not spending too much time trying to get involved and entangled with the world. You're learning to live within the parameters, the limits of our vinaya and our, the requisites we have, the accommodation, the robes, the medicines, you know, the basic things we use to learn how to be easy, not to be a burden on others, on the laity, on the other sangha members, <coughs> not to be one who's caught into complaining, not to be caught into anxiety, always worrying about how will I do this, how will I get that. These are practical teachings how to follow the eightfold, develop the eightfold noble path simply and easily without a lot of problems or throwing up a lot of extra problems. We already have enough obstacles in our life from, from our own karma, our moods, the attachment to this body, the identification with this body, and then our attachment to our different moods. So learning just to be at ease within the Vinaya, within the lifestyle of a monk, not to be burdening the world or seeking a lot from the world, already sets the mind up to really deepen the practice. Learning to accept whatever comes in terms of the, the mental states you experience, the way things are, whether it's external conditions or just internally, how you feel, what you're thinking. Accept who you are and your karma, and then apply the Dhamma to it. And learning to develop mindfulness as much as we can, using sitting and walking meditation, using time wisely, being willing to go against the grain. So not always sleeping as quite as much as you would like, not always eating as much as you would like, not always socializing as much as you would quite like. Well, this is, this is, these are the skills we learn as a bhikkhu. Just how to manage and train ourselves in the different areas that tend to distract us and take us away from the present moment from the development of mindfulness and from the development of wholesome mind states. You see the unmindful behavior, you might say sloppy, careless behavior, only promotes the kilesis, greed, anger, delusion. 
where does sloppy, careless behavior come from? A lack of reflection, a lack of attention. It's not really for somebody else to judge or know. It's hard for others to know where we're at in our practice. But we know. It's this quality of developing the inner knowing, the one who knows, that's so valuable. And a sense of honesty and a love of truth. Be honest with yourself, not so you can punish yourself or blame yourself, but just be honest when you see defilements coming up, at least recognize them for what they are. Learn cause and effect, what promotes defiled behavior, defiled thinking, defiled speaking, defiled action, rooted in greed, anger, delusion, what promotes it, what reduces it, what practices work for us. And this is a time to really experiment with that, to learn how you can summon up more effort, how to be patient with so particularly with painful feelings, so if you're sitting or walking or tired, how to maintain effort through the day or through the night, patient effort, determined effort. There's a whole variety of teachings we use for this, reflections we can bring out. Just the daily meditations and bringing up reflection of matter to counter our habit of always getting becoming negative with other people around us and or, or just with ourselves and developing the reflection on death keep reminding yourself you don't know how long you've got as we get older closer to our death it doesn't get easier the practice because the body gets weaker, more painful, there's more problems. Mental faculties may be not so sharp the older you get. So take the present moment, this present day, this present moment as, as the most important time to practice because we don't know how long we've got. Or reflect, say, when you do die, how do you want your mind to be when you die? Are you happy to have a sort of distracted state of mind or a careless state of mind just following every mood that arises? When craving comes up strongly, reflect on death. Where will your craving lead you? How many more pleasant experiences, distracting experiences do we need? to be satisfied. <clears throat> and there's no quenching the thirst of craving by following it, even though at the time it seems the correct thing to do. All those short-term mood swings, short-term sensual pleasures, different experiences that we crave and seek, they don't last, they don't bring us any permanent happiness or understanding. Where real peace and happiness comes from, it's from relinquishing craving, seeing through it, not following it, having enough mindfulness, enough insight to not follow it, but just recognize it for what it is and then abandon it.
One of the problems in our practice over time is we can become very complacent. So particularly once we've learned the basics of the Vinaya, learned the chanting, learned how to meditate, how to live in the forest, then our mind can go to sleep again. We accept oh, this is good enough. I can keep my mind to a to experience a certain level of peace. I know how to live with other people, follow the rules, follow the routines. Often we feel that's good enough. And the mind goes to sleep and then craving is still there and it's still affecting us, bubbling up, finding new outlets, new ways to come up. So vigilance, heedfulness is vital quality to develop in the practice. Reflecting on death, the impermanence of life helps to bring up heedfulness. Say so tonight we practice all night, being the full moon night. Just reflect, if this was your last night, how would you want to die? How would you want your mind to be? There's really no other experience we need to have in this, <coughs> in this world, no pleasure to seek with your family and friends, all you can say is goodbye. There's nothing more you can do with them if this was your last night. But more important is, you know, the karma you would be, you would be taking to your grave if this was your last night. How much suffering would you want to take with you? Or are you ready to put things down? Are you ready to let go of the things you crave? This is how the reflection on death it directs your mind right to the present moment, right to whatever is bothering you, the roots of the dissatisfaction. It can help release you from a lot of petty and not very important distractions and desires. We have to find these ways to reflect, to bring up both the energy and the effort in the practice direct it to the development of the path, but also the energy and the effort to abandon the obstacles to the path, the hindrances, the mental defilements and afflictions. So we still have much to do, we still have effort to make, we still have practice to do. A part of complacency is a sort of apathy. Once you've achieved a certain level of peace, understanding, you've read the books, you know the basic teachings, then the mind can be apathetic, just kind of go to sleep, become dull and accept whatever level we've achieved. As the ancient Chinese used to say, when there's no movement, there's no life. As long as we're practicing, we have to move, we have to, there has to be skillful action. We can't become apathetic as long as the craving and clinging is still affecting us. Because it will keep pulling the mind back to suffering. And as we do get older, it gets harder. The effects of the, the aging on the body, the changes in the mental faculties put more pressure on the mind. So as we know, old, older people who haven't practiced experience a lot of suffering. 
Whereas those who have practiced, you can see the brightness and the peace that comes from having right view and wisdom and develop some mindfulness, even when they're experiencing pain or different debilitating diseases and conditions. There's a brightness. Recently we were visiting Lumpur Sawang in Thailand, who's got terminal cancer and there's really very little they can do for him now. He's had quite a few doctors look at him, different treatments tried. All it can do is alleviate some of the discomfort. But his spirits are remarkably high. He's still able to use that Dhamma that he's developed over his life. It's a good example of how the Dhamma can help you towards the end of your life. Monks and lay people go and visit him. He doesn't complain, he doesn't cry and moan, thrash about. Even though he's weak, there's a certain grace and beauty to his behavior. These are the practical living results of, of Dhamma practice that we can all aspire to an experience if we keep putting effort into our practice. This is a time, like the Vata is a time, an ideal time for that. It's a time to wholeheartedly put your effort into the sitting, the walking, becoming mindful as you practice in every posture, standing, walking, sitting, lying down, learning to reflect on the Dhamma, use the Four Noble Truths as your structure, your framework. I'll encourage you all to use this time wisely and well. And uh, we have a night of practice ahead of us tonight, so we can carry on sitting meditation for now. And I'll leave you with these reflections for this evening. <laughs> 